Hey, Mars Hill, my name is Mike Erie, and it is a delight to be with you. I have for many years been a cheerleader of your church and what God's doing here and through here, and uh, I'm really quite excited to, to be here. The problem um, is that we have just washed the carpets in the shed, and so the humidity is like 100%. I am not made for humidity, so you're going to see a lot of this um, and as you're sitting there, I imagine I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this man looks a lot like AJ. And you're absolutely right. We get confused a lot. It's been a tough burden to bear, but I think we'll manage. Uh, I'm uh, originally from Ohio. Please don't hold that against me. I married my wife, Justina, who is from Lansing, Michigan. So we're a blended family, as they say. And, um, and it's great to be with you. We're going to continue on in our John series and the first part of John roughly breaks into two parts. The first part of John deals with the seven signs, the seven I am statements that accompany those signs, beginning with a wedding and ending with a funeral, like we'll see today. And then the book pivots in this chapter 11 and then part of chapter 12 into kind of the last week of Jesus's life. So we're going to look at that seventh sign today, a passage that I think for a lot of us is very familiar but as always, we want to look at it with fresh ears and fresh eyes to see what God has for us. We have a lot of text to get through, so we'll just hop right in. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And then, and then John adds this parenthesis. This, is Mary, this same Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, interestingly, in John's gospel, this hasn't happened yet. Evidently, it was so well known in the early Christian community that John could just reference it, even though he hasn't told that story. But just to clarify who it is, this is the Mary and the Martha and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, and so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick, which evidently means that you can, buy loved, you can be loved by Jesus and still be sick. When Jesus got the message, he said, this sickness will not end in death. I mean, although Lazarus will physically die, death is not going to have the last word over his story. Jesus instead says, no, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And when, in, in John's Gospel, when you see the word glory, that just means revelation. It is, it is through this death, something will be revealed about who God is and who Jesus is. Now the text tells us again, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And in the original language here, it's super emphatic. It's, uh, we've been told twice, Jesus loves these people. He finds out his friend is sick. Jesus loves these people. So therefore, he stayed where he was for two more days. It totally, it's, it, it sets you up for something that is unexpected, that Jesus would delay. We find out in just a little bit that he's only a, a day's walk from Mary and Martha. And so he stays where he is for two more days. This, of course, raises questions, especially at the end of those two days. He says, let's go down to Judea. 
Rabbi, his disciples said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and yet you're going to go back there. Now this was at the end of chapter 10. They tried to arrest him and then they tried to put him to death by stoning. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. And lots of debate over what he's saying here. My best guess is what Jesus is referring to is that, and, and, and this is consistent with how John uses darkness and light in his gospel, that the light is the season of Jesus' ministry where he's doing the work of the Father and he's relatively immune from harm. So he's saying, I think, to his disciples, it's still light out. I still have work to do. I can go back. Darkness what Jesus begins to refer to and John symbolically enacts later when the prince of the world now has his time over Christ. And so I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, this, it's still daytime. I'm still doing the Father's work. Uh, obviously, the crucifixion is the Father's work too. But in this instance, it's, he, it's safe for him at the moment to go back. Jesus Uh, says this, and then after he'd said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go and wake him up. The disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. (laughs) Jesus had been speaking of his death, right? Falling asleep is a euphemism in the New Testament about dying, but it can also mean literally falling asleep, and that's how the disciples understand it. So then Jesus told them plainly, after they misunderstood, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. Again, another reference that this this is a story about Lazarus, but it's also a story that's serving a much larger purpose, that the son is going to be glorified, yes, the disciples also might believe. Then Thomas, also called the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So what what we're hearing is that when Jesus got the message that Lazarus was sick, he'd actually died that day. They entombed the body on the day of death. Jesus waited two days and then on the fourth day walked over. He'd been there in the tomb for four days and because Bethany was close to Jerusalem, many Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Well, forgive the sweat rag. But this is an important point. Mary didn't stay at home. Mary stayed seated is what the Greek word means. This was in reference to an ancient practice called sitting shiva or shiva, depending on how you pronounce it. It's a Hebrew word for seven, and it's the practice of mourning, ritual mourning for seven days. In the ancient Near East, um, what would happen is the bereaved would sit on a cushion or on a low stool in the middle of their house, and people would come from all over to pay their respects. 
And what they would do is they would just be present. The bereaved would not have to cook or clean or do any of the normal sorts of things they were supposed to do. They were even exempt from synagogue during this period of mourning. And those that had gathered would sit and take their cues from the bereaved. So if the bereaved wanted to talk, they would talk. If the bereaved was silent, they were silent. If the bereaved wanted to visit the tomb, they would go visit the tomb. If the bereaved wanted to pray, they would pray. Really powerful practice, still practiced actually, some parts of Israel. And so Mary stays seated, still in mourning. Martha is actually the one that gets up and rushes to Jesus. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know how she said this, but it certainly got all the makings of a major guilt trip, right? (laughs) I can hear my mom saying that to me, like when I'm 14 or something. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And, And she says this, but then she accompanies that kind of statement of protest or concern or question. She accompanies it with, but I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. So it's this weird statement of, ah, but I believe. Jesus responds and says, your brother will rise again. And this is tensed in a way that leads Martha to believe that what Jesus is talking about is the resurrection of the last, on the last day. Right? This was a Pharisaic belief, but held by many in Israel in these days, that the righteous, that all the dead would be raised, the righteous would live with God, the wicked would then be cast down. This comes from Daniel and some other places in the Old Testament. The idea is that Martha affirmed a piece of theology, a piece of doctrine that Jesus himself held to, obviously. Hey, your brother will rise again. She thinks he means someday, which is great news, but not terribly comforting in the moment. So Martha answers Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says this such, I mean, this is such a famous picture of who he is and what he's about. But she affirms this piece of doctrine. Yeah, yeah, he'll rise again, the resurrection of the last day. And then Jesus responds, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Like the last day has come forward. It's invading right here. Right? The, the, the resurrection, yes, totally agree, it's going to happen in the future. But in the person of Christ, the resurrection has a face and has a name. It has been pushed forward so that the last day start now. New creation is bursting forth now. She affirms the doctrine of someday. He personalizes it to now. I am the resurrection and the life. And he goes on, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asks her this question, do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Totally exalted affirmation of faith. I'm not sure she's answering the question. So think about what we've had here. (laughs) Your brother's gonna rise again. Yeah, during the last day. Nope, I am the last day and it's now and it's here. 
do you believe this? Well, I believe you're the son of God and the Messiah. Okay. After Martha had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside and said, the teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, right? Because that was their job to take cues from the bereaved. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So now Mary, excuse me, Martha went out by herself. But now in Mary's going out, many of the Jews that had come from Jerusalem were with her and were now going to witness what was going to happen. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, first of all, okay, we've heard this before, right? So obviously the sisters have talked about this and lamented over this. Mary falls at his feet and says this, and she doesn't say the second part, but even now I can believe God can do anything through you. She just begins to weep. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, now the word for weeping is wailing, crying out, mourning loudly. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, that same wailing and crying out, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, this is, this is very important. Deeply moved is not the best way to say this. In fact, a lot of other translations uh, reflect what the Greek actually means, which is that Jesus was angry. Deeply moved comes from a word that was used to describe horses when they would charge in battle and they would snort. I don't know what that exactly sounds like, but I can imagine there's a bit of indignation. The word literally is translated other places in Jesus's ministry. Jesus sternly rebuked somebody or Jesus scolded somebody. So Jesus, and we're not told why, he sees the wailing of Mary and the wailing of the Jews and he gets angry. He's indignant. Where have you laid him? He asks. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then, of course, one of the most famous verses, one of the most comforting verses, Jesus wept. Jesus didn't explain himself. He didn't say, hey, there's this delay. I waited two days so that people would believe. He didn't say anything. In his anger, he went to the tomb, and there he wept. Now, what's interesting is that John uses a different word for Jesus' weeping than the weeping of Mary and the mourners. Mary and the mourners, they were wailing, right? And if you've ever seen this depicted in the Middle East, right, it's a loud cry. For Jesus, the word just means he shed tears. So John's wanting to tell us Jesus' weeping is different than the wailing of the mourners and of Mary. And again, 
we don't know. We don't know why Jesus is crying or why he was angry. I would imagine he was angry at the unbelief of those around him, angry at the reality of death and what it would done to this family that we're told several times he loves. But Jesus' weeping is different than the other weeping. The Jews, some of them looked around and said, see how Jesus loved him, Lazarus. But some of the others said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So some of the Jews are like, oh, that Jesus, look at how loving he is. And some of them are like, yeah, but, he, but they echo the concern of Mary and Martha. He could have done more. It's only a day's walk. He could have been here sooner. Verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved. And again, it's that same word in verse 33. Once more indignant and angry came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. And then Martha, <laughs> God bless her. But Lord, by this time, it stinks. Because he's been in there four days. Now, the four-day thing, there's some ancient rabbinical writings that seem to indicate there was a belief around this time that the life force of somebody would wait, would, would stay around a dead body waiting for the opportunity to come back in. But once decay set in at the end of the third day, the beginning of the fourth day, there was no possibility of resuscitation. There was no possibility of resurrection. Once you were in the fourth day, all hope was gone. And maybe that's why Jesus waits two days, so that he arrives on the fourth day, so that nobody there, even though Jesus had raised other people from the dead, not a four-day-old stinking corpse, no one had done that. Jesus said to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? They took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people around me so that they might believe, right? There's this constant refrain that the disciples might believe. Mary, do you believe this? Right, and now he's praying out loud so that the people would believe. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, that is a lot of text. <laughs> and there's so much going on in the midst of it. There are, I think, three layers, at least three, to the story I want to briefly highlight. The first layer of the story is probably the most obvious one. This is a story about believing in Jesus. Right? It's the whole thing was done so that the disciples would believe, so that Martha would believe, so that Mary would believe, and so that the Jews would believe. John writes this whole book so that you might believe. 
And interestingly, belief in the Gospel of John means a readiness to act. It's not just an intellectual thing, right? Martha, she intellectually believed Jesus was the Messiah. She intellectually believed in the resurrection of the last day. But when Jesus tells her specifically, Lazarus will rise again, and I am the resurrection, and then says, hey, roll away the stone, what'd she say? Dude, it's going to (laughs) sink. There's just no hope, right? Believing in John is a readiness to act. So when does Martha believe? She affirms great pieces of doctrine, but my goodness, what a difference it makes when that doctrine becomes a person. So the first layer is probably the most foundational, the most obvious in the story. This is why Jesus did this, so that people would believe. But there's a second layer, and it's hinted out, hinted at, excuse me, all throughout the story. And this is a story that's not just about Lazarus, but it's a story about Jesus. He's just told us in chapter 10 that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And think about how much the text here highlights the danger that Jesus is in. Dan, go ahead and fire that up. Right? A short while ago, the Jews were trying to stone you, and yet you're going back? Or in verse 16, Thomas is so sure of this, well, let's go with him in order to die with him. Right? Jesus, everyone knew going back, even though Jesus gives this saying about, yep, it's still daylight. This is the event in John's gospel that catapults the movement to crucify Jesus forward. Next slide. We didn't look at this. After many from the Jews saw that Jesus saw what Jesus did, and many believed, but some went to the Pharisees and reported to them what Jesus did. Therefore, the high priests gathered together, and Caiaphas, a man named Caiaphas, very famously says, next slide. He says to the assembled crowd, because they were worried about what the Romans would do, he said, you do not realize it's better for us, the nation, that one man die for the people than a whole nation perish. And John adds, we don't have time to look at it, but John adds parenthetically, by this he prophesied the kind of death Jesus was about to die. Right, what you've got isn't just a story about us believing, But it's a story where Jesus is going to bring life to his friend at the cost of his own life. Jesus is enacting what the good shepherd does. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down their life for their friend. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. This this in miniature is the journey that Jesus himself is about to walk. Maybe he was angry and weeping at that. Don't know. And there are these little textual hints, like when Jesus cries out in a loud voice to roll away the stone, right? We meet a stone that's rolled away. We hear a loud voice crying out from the cross. And then there's this bit about the burial clothes. It's so interesting. John describes the burial clothes are still on Lazarus, and he needs help. And then when they come to Jesus' tomb on the first day of the week, the burial cloths are folded, (laughs) 
and laid nicely in the corner, right? I mean, this is just setting us up for what's about to happen. It's a story about believing and why we consider Jesus to be who he is. And it's a story about Jesus giving up his life for the sake of another. And lastly, I think we can say that it's also a story about us. This is the journey each of us will undergo. Unless Jesus returns in our lifetimes, we will get sick. Jesus won't answer our prayers for healing. He will delay. We will die. We'll be mourned, hopefully. Then at some point in the future, our name will be called out, right? Jesus himself says this in John 5. It's amazing. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, right? That's what he just did for Lazarus. And that's what he'll do for us. The resurrection isn't a doctrine, it's a person. So there'll come a point when we'll have to live at the intersection of anger and tears and wailing and hope. Jesus is presented here as a man of very, very complex emotions. And I dare not hazard what he was thinking or feeling. But certainly, knowing Lazarus was about to be raised, the grief of Jesus, the anger of Jesus, the indignation of Jesus shows us that it is compatible to have hope even in the midst of those circumstances. Paul puts it this way. Grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And so it's that intersection of grieving and hoping where so many of us find our place in this story. Yeah, 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 I believe in the resurrection of the last day. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he is the resurrection. And yet our country feels like it's falling apart. I don't have a job. I'm scared to death to get sick. Lost health insurance. The racial tension in our country is at a peak. We have an election coming that who knows what that season's going to bring. And so we're called to be people who embody both sides of this story. The grieving at the tomb, the hope that the tomb isn't the final point to our story. We live in this intersection of hope and grief. And so I just find it interesting. Jesus, he doesn't give cliches. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't, you know, try to explain. He feels what he feels. The moment hits him full on. And even though the Jews and Mary and Martha and the disciples aren't getting it, he still raises Lazarus from the dead. So evidently you can feel sorrow and still feel hope. You can be angry and still be hopeful. Jesus gives us permission to live. And the hope we're talking about here isn't, I mean, Jesus isn't giving cliches here. This isn't naive optimism that it's just gonna be okay. 
Jesus feels the full force of this and still proclaims the goodness and faithfulness of God in the meantime. And I don't know about you, but there isn't a more fitting word for me these days. God bless you, Mars Hill. Thank you.